So today we are starting uh, the second statement. This, this study committee report was requested of the 2019 General Assembly because there's so much controversy in the world on this topic. And when the Oberfell decision came through in 2015 that legalized gay marriage, it just came, became more of a pressure because at that point, when, you, when the country legalizes something or codifies something, it, you know, it stands to reason that that will be something that will be promoted and taught uh, in, in schools and such. And so it becomes um, a matter, even a litmus, if you don't hold this position, you don't get government funds. Or you, and it just, all of a sudden, I think, faster than most Christians realized, it was right in their face that if you held a historic biblical Christian ethic, um, which is the ethic we hold and what I'm teaching here is not just the 2,000 years of Christian history, it spans the thousands of years of Jewish history. Um, the, the, the latest iterations of what marriage is, this is, this is the, the new stuff. This is the, the old way or the, the way that humanity has largely seen it is the way I'm describing it, but certainly um, from a Christian perspective, this is the way that um, it's historically been understood. So when all of a sudden... Um, people saw the changes coming in culture, I don't think that people fully realized that it was going to press upon your view and practice. It wasn't just that you could hold your view and practice and, and, they can, and other people could do what they want to do. It was going to, it was going to be a clash. It's two trains going opposite directions on a train track, and it's, it flows from the sexual revolution that our culture's been under for, for 50 plus years, but it's just reached a certain um, climax in this debate, this argument. That's what we're seeing um, it's be so pressing. So in 2019, because of controversy at large and controversy even within our own denomination about nuances related to this, um, uh, people were assigned. Some of the you know brightest minds in our denomination uh, came together to provide a modern treatment of this ancient understanding, this biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality and such, human sexuality being the main thing. Um, it doesn't plumb the depths of every aspect related to it. It really deals a lot with the same-sex attraction issue, but it does uh, provide great principles that help us understand the whole of the topic. So that's how it came about. They produced 12 statements. And over 12 weeks, I'll go through each one of those statements. And you have statement two in front of you on a little half sheet, and that's going to be what I talk through today. Um, I had mentioned before I would do questions at the end. What I think I'm going to do, I'll do that today because I didn't warn you otherwise, but after today, email me your questions, and then I'll answer them at the beginning of the next class so I can make sure I have time. I'm afraid if I, um, it's hard for me to do this in 30 minutes anyways. And then in addition, and also I know we love to, I, I really, I'm asking for questions more than statements when we get to the end. Uh, and so that it's fine if you have a statement or want to talk to me about the issue, talk to me offline about it. But it's really about questions at that point, like asking for clarification about something related to this topic, not really necessarily time to, to let everyone else know what you, what you think. I care what you think, but this class is for expressing these statements first. So we'll, we'll do a little different approach after this week. If you just email me a question that you want for clarification, I'll start every lesson with answering some of those and then going into the lesson for today. Now, as we begin the second um, topic, image of God and how this relates to human sexuality, how a paper is devised like this or even confessional statements or doctrine, uh, doctrinal statements it, 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 it's really, it's a thorough process that comes up with a paper like this that's helpful to understand. There are different disciplines that come together to help us make these statements. So when you read what you read there, I didn't include all the biblical references and 
um, confessional references. I explain those a little in the lesson. But these are statements that are really carefully crafted with a lot of backing and input. And the, the, there's three basic disciplines that come together whenever you have a, think of our confession of faith like this. There's what's called exegetical theology. There's secondly, systematic theology. And there's thirdly, biblical theology. Now there's a fourth one called historical theology, which helps inform, but the three we're concerned with are those other three. Exegetical theology is taking the text of Scripture and exegeting it, extracting the meaning as God intended it to the original author and to the original audience, through the original author, through the, to the original audience, to get the accurate reading of the text. What is the meaning of the text? When I preach a sermon, it's primarily exegetical theology, although I'm including the other two. I'm really expositionally walking through the passage because the message of the sermon should be the message of the text, vice versa. It shouldn't be Tony's sermon. That's why even in Advent, I'm always a little uncomfortable with topical type sermons because I'm not as confident in myself to put together what I think is biblical themes. I'd much rather be right in the text and walking through the text. This is preach the text means this is what the text said through the author to the original audience and how it connects to you. That's exegetical theology. That's the base level of interpretation. But from that, you start to devise systematic theology, which is, well, we keep confronting the Holy Spirit throughout these different ministries or the person of Christ through these different texts that I'm doing exegesis on. What do all these collectively say about Jesus? What do they collectively say about the Holy Spirit? What does it collectively say about prayer? What does it collectively say about the church? That's systematic theology. It's informed from exegetical theology. Now, there's biblical theology, which is take a step back and look at the theme of Scripture. What are the threads? Kingdom, covenant, uh, dominion. Like, these are thematic elements that are, that are laced out in the story of God's redemption. That's biblical theology. You have to have all of these to do proper interpretation. Most errors happen in the church or among pe well-meaning people when they don't properly appreciate those three disciplines that go into determining a position. You have to work at a position. If you pull one verse out and say, look, this verse says this, and then uh, no, I'm not going to listen to anything else say because this verse says that. that that's just not, that's not um, reasonable. That's not taking into account the whole of the biblical writ. And so you need those three disciplines working together to come up with a position paper like this or a confessional document like we have. Or even when I do preach a sermon, if I'm on a given text and that text is addressing something, it's the only text that addresses it just like it does in Scripture, I want to be careful about making something completely normative about one verse and just tell you I want to then back up and apply some systematic theology, apply some biblical theology. So that's, that's, I'm just describing how we teach Scripture, how we teach, teach theology, how you should approach theology to some degree. Now, there's this thing called historical theology, which is helpful. Historical theology is where you look at what other people in the past have said about these different positions we take or these views we have. So that's what a historical theological view is. What is the basic take that Christians have had about uh, the matter of human sexuality? And that's, that's helpful, but that's, not, that, that's more to see if we're in the ballpark. Like, that's why I, I'll read a commentary, because I want to know historically, what do people, how do they interpret Genesis? So that's, that's more the historical theological point. So I'm saying all this to you to let you know that that kind of process was applied <clears throat> when this paper was done. And so these statements I'm giving you are not just hanging in a vacuum. They're connected to uh, being extracted from these different disciplines. With that, look with me at the, this uh, section. What I'll do is I'll, I'll walk through... Uh, Scott, can I see your sheet? Oh, you got to read that. I, don't, I, I don't have it all broken down. Can I get one of my sheets back there, those half sheets? 
I just want to read the whole thing before I go through it. Sorry. Thank you. All right. This is the statement, image of God. We affirm that God created human beings in his image as male and female. Likewise, we recognize the goodness of the human body and the call to glorify God with our bodies. As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. While situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, men and women should be be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. Nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. We recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. Moreover, some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Such persons are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. All right, so that's a thorough statement on how the image of God applies to the matter of human sexuality. Let's take it statement by statement. We affirm that God created human beings in his image as male and female. And this comes from Genesis 1, where God says, in Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the image of God he created him. Male and female he created him. So the imago Dei, or the image of God, this is what differentiates mankind, or humankind, I'll say, from the rest of creation. That's what makes us different from the animals. Um, And there's some mystery to all that you can unpack with the term, the image of God. What does it all mean and what does it entail? Uh, But the genders, which there are two, this is just simply giving us, uh, we shouldn't derive too much out of that, but just recognize there's the image of God and then he differentiates two genders within the image of God. And that's, that's what we can say. Saying more than that can kind of get, get you into some trouble. But there's male and there's female, and these two genders bear the image of God. Um, they don't need each other together to be the image of God. On your own, you bear the image of God. Man or woman, you bear the image of God. Uh, and so this is what Scripture teaches. Uh, but the genders, um, as we notice, have different roles and such. That doesn't change the fact that the image of God is equally there stamped upon us. It has to do with our worth. It has to do with um, us being in a place above the rest of creation. We're ca- given a capacity with the image of God to care for or steward creation. Um, we are vice regents of God over the creation. That's what is expressed in the image of God. That's the most important feature is that when God creates, he appoints mankind as his representative on earth and in creation to steward all things. This is what um, we're called to do. All creation is valuable because it's created by God and we should steward all of it. None of it should be thought of as, as, uh, as something that's expendable. However, mankind, humankind, is above the rest of creation because it has purpose in the rest of creation's existence and ability to sustain itself. Humankind stands in some way between God and the rest of creation as his representative. All people, every human being, every person, has a a special divinely ascribed worth because you bear 
the image of God because people bear the image of God. Even the most distorted, damaged, corrupted, deformed, tainted person is creating the God's image, invaluable. If you've ever worked in settings where you've had to deal with people who are in, uh, in, in drug addiction, maybe some of you have come from it, um, the closest someone could come to being almost inhuman is when they get to a place where they're just about near death and only sustained by the next hit on drugs. And I've had occasion to, to meet people I knew before and after, and you can barely recognize them as human, but they are human, and they're creating the image of God, and they're valuable, and they're important. And anything you can think of by way of the way a person cannot look like a person, they are creating the image of God, and that's the stamp that, ever, that, that is placed upon us as humankind. And the image of God created male and female. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Likewise, we recognize the goodness of the human body. That's the next statement. The goodness of the human body. This is an important teaching that maybe we um, don't emphasize enough in, in the teaching of the church. In Genesis 1 verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So he had made man and woman and given them physical bodies. So he's saying that their physical bodies, as well as their souls, but he saw everything they made, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I say this because in the antiquity, there is a teaching that the material is bad and the spiritual is good, that the physical is bad or evil and the spiritual is good. And, the, and partly that's because the sins we commit and the things we do that are distorted and corrupted because of sin, they're done in the physical body. And so the physical body is, is easy to pick on in that regard, to point out sin. Um, also, the fact that we break down, that people age, that there's things that occur to us as we get older, or we're not happy with our physical state, it deteriorates. So we think in terms of the physical or the, 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 the body as being evil somehow, and it's not at all. It's, the body is good. In God's original creation, the body is good. In fact, your eternity will be lived as the body-soul nexus. This body you got right now that you have this relationship with that's tough, uh, because you're getting older and you're aging, the things that occur, it will be restored. It's the seed of what your glorified body will look like. It will have some resemblance. I mean, it will be in its, its uh, glorified state. Uh, but that's, you'll live a physical, Jesus is in a physical body right now. I don't know where the heaven is, the realm of heaven and such, but he has a physical body, a real body and a real soul, and so will we, glorified body. So we're going to have bodies. That means that the body the human body has value and is connected in some fashion to God's image. However that works, I don't know the specifics. If people tell you they know the specifics, they don't. It's a challenge. It's a mystery. But our body-soul nexus is how we were created, and it was very good. So there's nothing evil about the body, nothing evil about the soul, except for what happens once sin occurs. But in its creation, in our creation, um, you could be certain that there's a goodness in the human body as it was created. Um, Jesus' incarnation further proves this point about the goodness of the human body. The human body should be therefore treated with reverence, both dead and alive, because it is part of the image of God. We should be very careful to recognize um, what uh, the human body means. Part of Christian burial that's been um, an important feature, the reason why we're so careful and reverent about how we go about burial 
is because we're recognizing our belief in the resurrection and our belief in the goodness of the body despite how the body carried out the results of sin temporally. We know that because of Christ and his redemption, it will be restored. So we, are, we go about how we handle the, the body very carefully because it's a profession of what we believe to be true about the human body. In John chapter 1, speaking of Christ in his incarnation, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. The word becomes flesh and he beheld glory. So there's a gloriousness about the human body that we should recognize as the Bible teaching and expressing. Jesus had glory even in his physical state. Uh, he, he continues to maintain this glory with his physical glorified body in heaven. The human body is fearfully and wonderfully made, as we read in the Psalms. And our bodies are extremely resilient. Even the side of the fall, it's amazing what the body is able to recover from. It's amazing what can be done with the body, that you have two kidneys and you can give one kidney to somebody else. I was, uh, a few weeks ago, when Joel Beakey was here, he told us of a relative, um, a guy, he, he was a missionary, his mother was dying of some liver ailment, and this man, her son, gave part of his liver. They could cut one of the lobes of your liver, apparently. I, I wouldn't say it's normally, because I would have enough doctors that would be emailing me after, but this is what he said, that they cut part of his liver out and gave it to his mother. It's an amazing thing what the human body could do. Even the side of the fall with all the problems we have with it, all the things that we can still do um, to extend life and to help people with ailments and sicknesses. So the human body is a, is a glorious thing for sure. Um, you can give your blood to somebody else. Think about that. Um, made with incredible curative cap capabilities. It's an incredible thing. The brain, I've been learning more about brain injuries and such, just trying to study that and, and understanding what people I know are dealing with. And it's an amazing that the brain can have damage in one area and somehow figure out a way to rewire and reroute to another area and pick up. So that it, it's, it's neat because you can never be categorical about where someone is in this because the body's ability, the human body's ability to reroute and, and recreate itself in some fashion is an amazing, amazing feature of God's glorious creation. And this is in our extremely diminished state that I'm talking. This is, this is our post-fall state. So it just gives us a little bit of an inkling of the full glory that is ours apart from sin and its impact and its effect. With this comes the next statement and the call to glorify God with our bodies. Given what I just said about our bodies, what the scripture says about our bodies, what we do with our bodies matters. It's important. It has, it has um, impact. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to what this says. Paul writing, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, the background for Corinthians is they were living in a place where, where sexual immorality was just part of the woven into the culture. There was prostitute um, cult pro cults, and going to a prostitute, as long as it was in the body, this part of the Greek, the Greek uh, philosophy, 
if you do something in the body, it doesn't affect the soul, and, there's certain, and they want to make a di- dichotomy. And Paul's saying that is not the truth of it. That's not how you were designed at all. That's not how it really works. You cannot separate um, the effects of your body on your soul. What you do with your body will have impact on your soul. It's, just, it's the natural way God has created the body-soul nexus. Um, we all know this. And maybe you, you've been in experiences in your life where you've been through very difficult things. You know that it wasn't just a physical thing that was done to you or that you did or whatever the case. Um, you know that it's more far-ranging than that. Now, the modern culture will just say, oh, that's just religious culture guilt making you feel that way. I know people have not religious at all and been through things like this, and they can't explain the, the bruise and the damage it is to their soul. It's not just about a bunch of religious fuddy-duddies making you feel bad. It's because you were made a body and a soul. And if you join the body with something in an unrighteous way, and it's not, it's not just sexually. It could be food. It could be substance. It could be any of the things that we're sensual about. Because we like pleasure, and so we go to alcohol, what it makes us feel like. Or we like sensuality in the terms of sex, so we go to that pleasure. Or we like the way things taste, and we, go to, and we lose control of the things that affects our body and our soul together. That's the reality of the fight of humanity against sin and how it impacts our body-soul nexus. But the passage goes on in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Very explicit from uh, Paul to the Corinthians. There was nothing they were doing in Corinth that they aren't doing today. What's happening today is not new to humanity. And certainly it was uh, prevalent in, in, in Corinth. And so these are very timeless principles and, and, and helpful words to us. The fall corrupts the body. The body breaks down over time. Um, you could be born right out of the gate with multiple disabilities, maybe things that can't even be seen uh, on a molecular level. Um, that the fall affects all of that. So we recognize um, that fallen appetites come also with sin. And, and these appetites can take primary control of our lives, if, not, if left unchecked. Absolutely they can. I mentioned some of them already. But it's especially true with sexual expression, activity, and practice. Um, so purity is a big deal for the complex way in which it impacts the whole person and other people. So how we practice sexuality in our lives, sexual activity in our lives, it is, it is really far-encompassing. It's not that one sin is worse than the other in the eyes of a holy God, but as you, as a body-soul nexus, as a person created this way, it does have a different kind of impact because of what, it, what it's meant to do and how it's being used when they're not the same they, have, they, they can have quite a bit of damage. Um, much more could be said about this, but I think you, you probably get the point. The next statement in, in uh, the next sentence in the statement, as a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. In 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as for a covering. Now, I know there's some cultural features to this, but let me express, uh, explain something. Okay, 
long hair here for a woman compared to a man, especially in most of history up until more recent times, in most cultures even today, is really long hair. Like um, the women in the first century, we're talking like way long hair. Um, and that was, they, they didn't even cut it for years on purpose. It was just something women did to differentiate themselves and it was understood that way. Men had longer hair then than they have now in general, but just not that long. And it was just very clear who is what. And it's the principle that you can see. Uh, the point is, guys should not adorn themselves in a way that a woman does. A, a guy should not try to look like a woman. You're a man. That's what you are. Now, what does a man look like? That's debatable. But you know what a woman looks like, and that's the point, okay? And that's, that's what's being said. Um, we should celebrate the fact that there are men and there are women. Uh, and that's, that's the expression here. And the confusing of it, especially when it's done on purpose, uh, is, is something that God opposes. He opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. It's a celebration of the, of the glory of God's creation that he has given men and women. He has given the genders. So that's, I think, the point being expressed here. And I think the statement does a good job of expressing that blatantly and boldly. Um, women should give evidence of their femininity and men their masculinity. We could discuss in debate, you know, what that looks like exactly, but now we're talking about the obvious extremes here, and you don't have to look far to see what those are in the culture that, in which we live. Um, while situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. So we encourage one another along these lines in a moderate way. Um, there can be a psychological disorder this side of the fall that mess, mess, that's what, it's something that's, it just confuses the way we're confused about a lot of things, and that's why we need God to speak to these things. Um, there's definitely things that can happen this side of the fall uh, that disorder our thinking, and we struggle with that. We need help to get that thinking straight. And um, that's a big part of what Carl Truman makes mention of in his book, the idea that what's happened now is we live in the era of psychological man. If you think it, then it must be true. And if I think this is true for myself, don't you dare tell me it's not true for me. And so when you are driven by psychology, um, anything someone thinks is, is fair game. And so it's not a fair thing to go through psychology, especially because our way of thinking is so mixed up and messed up this side of the fall. Um, we, we have to resist obeying appetites that will eventually destroy us if we keep following them. And that's just, that's just as a categorical statement, not whether it's right or wrong. If you overeat into such a state where you kill yourself, that's possible, or you overdrink or whatever it is, if you follow that appetite out, you'll end up um, finally in a state of, a state of death, which is, it, it repeats itself over and over again. I was, um, a couple different people came to mind. Freddie Mercury, who just died, who who was the lead singer for Queen for years, incredible talent and such, um, lived a completely promiscuous homosexual lifestyle and died of AIDS. Um, and he, and he, you know, he is kind of a poster person for that kind of life of promiscuity that eventually will kill you. There's another guy, uh, Easy e who was from NWA, who was, the, who was one of the rap groups in the 90s, started with gangster rap. He was not homosexual, lived this completely promiscuous life, and had the same thing happen to him. Just went out. And if it's not AIDS, it'll be something will kill you in that regard, too, because it just always leads to all sorts of medical problems. Um, that's the underbelly of the thing that isn't spoken of much, what happens with that particular lifestyle. So all of that to say, 
The appetite, the mindset, the affection has to be analyzed biblically, even biologically, but not psychologically is the main way of doing it uh, because the psychology of it will always lead you astray because our minds don't think, think straight apart from God giving us clarity of thought. The next statement, nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. This is an important feature. People are genuinely confused and disturbed. It's a great description, I thought, the the guys who put this together. Confused and disturbed. Confusion leads to disturb. I mean, they go together. They overlap one another. And confused and disturbed, very good term to describe what many people are experiencing. In Galatians, when Paul writes to the Galatians who had been confused about the gospel, he said, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And what do they mean by that? It was, it was something that was changing their way of thinking. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? In other words, true believers can become confused. They become confused about the gospel. So certainly they could become confused about matters of sexuality. For sure they can. We have to recognize this. And we see that this is described as being bewitched as far as the Galatians were concerned. It's a spiritual issue ultimately. In 2 Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. So now Paul's saying to Timothy, you're going to deal with all sorts of sins and people will deal with sins. You've got to be patient with people. So I'm saying to us as Christians, we're, we're trying to quantify stuff But I hope what it does is make us more compassionate about the reality of people struggling with it, maybe you yourself struggling with it, or whatever it is you struggle with, more patient with one another, not more judgmental, more patient with the reality of how much or how heavy this is for people, and really how pervasive some aspect of struggle with sin is. And it says further in 2 Timothy, um, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So with patience, yes, oppose it, but with patience and gentleness and care, a sense of, a sense of really um, bearing their burden too, with that, God may give them freedom from that. And maybe that's how you'll receive freedom is someone being patient with you. So it's a patience and a gentleness that we combine with what we know to be the truth, that we can see people who struggle um, win over that struggle. Uh, we recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature. I spent some time in the sermon this morning about this. I spent some time in Genesis 3 about this. I won't say more of it now other than to mention question 18 of the catechism, wherein consists the sinfulness of the estate wherein to man fell. The sinfulness of the state wherein to man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature. Every aspect of us is impacted by sin. Don't trust any aspect of your sin, uh, of your of your nature, to give you a righteous, uh, a righteous um, sense or a righteous push. It's always going to be. Uh, you have to question that and ask for God's help, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Human nature is corrupted, and sexuality is part of our nature. Um, original sin, that's our sin nature, same thing, that's what we're talking about. Realize that our analytical skills may be very, very flawed when analyzing our own selves. There's a larger section that I'll, I'll just say a couple things about. The last section there, it says, 
uh, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality, so we'll be confused about it uh, because of the way sin affects our whole nature. Moreover, some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Such persons are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. Now, what this is talking about is there is, and I'm not good at the technicals because I'm not a doctor, but I've done enough research in asking about it, that there are intersex situations where people are born. 1.5% of the births that occur, um, a person could be identified in this sense, intersex. Now, these are rare cases where the genitalia themselves or reproductive sexual anatomy they're considered abnormal in some ways. Now, it could still be obvious whether it's male or fe- whether a person's male or female, but there's enough um, issue with uh, irregularity or abnormality that it puts it in a category or puts the person in a category that's a little more challenging. Um, but then when you go to the actual chromosomal pattern, which is obviously XY normally for males and XX for females, um, that's a really, really, really low percentage, like one out of 100,000 births that have some issue with the chromosome pattern. So normally you go to the chromosome pattern if the physical aspect is difficult to tell, and, and that's generally how it's done today, is if your chromosomal pattern shows this, but you have some irregularity um, in your outward physical body, and that's the way that a person is steered or directed. Um, but we are talking about a very, very small percentage. But nevertheless, there are people that struggle with this, so therefore we have to have great patience and grace with this and understand that there's things we don't know and understand about that. And so we do our best to help. And I think this is a good description. Some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Such persons are made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. So those are the the rare instances, but instances nevertheless for sure. So we want to make sure we're recognizing that there are those cases and they become difficult and challenging. So that's the second statement on the image of God. If you have a question or two, I can try to answer them before. And then, um, like I said, if you have some more that you want to ask, email me. I'll either answer you privately or I'll then um, try to put it in the beginning of my next lesson.